This is Kevin Jeff. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Real Guy Podcast. This week we have A.B. Raymond. I've never had a guy on the Real Guy Podcast that I've known for such a short amount of time that I felt like I had so much in common with. This is the epitome of a real guy. Growing up in Miami Beach and having some of the best mentors that were ever in the business. I hope you enjoy this Real Guy Podcast with A.B. Raymond. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. So, dude, you were looking at a maritime skiff? Yeah, I was looking at a maritime skiff because I thought maybe it would be perfect for the for the backcountry thing I do back in the canals and lakes and those bridges are fixed bridges, you know? Right. Um, the fixed bridges, sometimes, like, there's a couple walking bridges back there that are so low that you you basically, you know, have, like, about 40 inches of clearance. So anything with a factory console typically wouldn't work. Um, but your skiff always seemed like the console was low enough looking at it. But the bow is a problem, I think. Uh, no, my console is good. Your 18 con- inches higher than the bow. But this 18-footer that I have here, I use as a tiller. Oh, that's cool. Now that thing can get under anything. <laughs> Wait, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah, I got I got uh I got two of them. I got the twenty twenty one footer and then the eighteen footer. Oh, I didn't even realize that. And I've probably seen you out in both of them actually, but I didn't even realize you had the eighteen. Now you probably never saw me in the eighteen. The eighteen I I pretty much only use here in the canals. Yeah, now that I think about it, you always were driving from the console, so you must have been on the twenty one. Yeah, you would have noticed because I just use them here in the canals just so I can get under the bridges like you're talking about and um yeah. I don't even have a bait well or anything. I mean, it's just dead plain with a tiller, and I just kind of monkey it together according to what kind of trip I'm doing. I always love tiller skiffs, man. Simple tiller skiffs like that. Well, I'm looking for a um, I'm looking for a shallow water skiff right now, and I had that Ranger Banshee, which I probably should have just kept. I don't know. It was a little slow. I had a 25 on that thing, but, man, I could get into anything. But it was a little... Well, I guess all those boats that don't draw anything friggin' totally suck in the chop. And that no, one that's yeah, they're like a surfboard, man. That's a problem. Yeah, you ever know anything about those beaver tail skiffs? Yeah, the beaver tails. I never fished, but they look beautiful. It's just that, man. It's always what always spooked me off of those. You know, the beaver tails, Hell's Bay is that. Man, I fish. You know, I fish anglers that are sometimes pretty overweight, sometimes pretty big in general. You know, and you put like a two hundred fifty pound guy. Right. In a corner of that thing, you're like taking on water and like, you know, it's just they just don't feel comfortable. They feel like they're going to fall right in the water off of those things. But they're they're beautiful if it's just like, you know, you and your kid or you and one light angler or something, you know. Yeah. You're like good to put like one Gatorade in like a, a sandwich in the cooler and then you're like maxed out on cargo capacity, you know. Yeah. Well, that's the you know, that's always the thing. I don't know, I'm doing more fly fishing now than I've done in a long time. And I don't even care um, if I don't do that many clients out there. I've been doing it by myself. Actually, I'm putting a trolling motor on my maritime right now because uh, I want to do fly fishing during the mullet run, solo mullet run stuff. You That's awesome. I mean? 
Yeah. Well, yeah, because just my boat and a and a trolling motor, I can fly fish all by myself. Yeah, no doubt. No, it's perfect, especially with the remote one. It goes on your neck. You know, you just sit there, hit the button once in a while. All these all these tarpon guides have been trying to tell me, oh, dude, you need one for spot locking and for this and for that, and like. I don't know. The catch ratio seemed to me like I was doing just fine without one. But the motivation is fly fishing by myself. <laughs> well, there you go. That puts you over the edge. And I'm sure you're going to like it. I, I just never, it, I could never conform to the trolling motor thing, like with my boat at least, because, you know, when we're fishing the inlets there, man, it's, there's nothing you can do. There's always a residual swell or usually a residual swell, except for like the calm of summer, like right now. And even with just a residual swell that things up on a bow, even with a 72 inch shaft, it's still kicking water, frothing water, like on the top of this, you know, the top of the swell, it comes out and, you know, I mean, it's just sucking air and blowing bubbles and it's rocking up and down. And that's why I couldn't conform to it is that I know that's going to happen with me. The guys tell me you could use it on the shipwrecks and, I'm like, man, not, not with the stuff I fish in. Even when it's three foot, the thing's useless. You know, it's out of the water half the time, basically. Right. That's one thing that the guy asked me. He says, how much offshore fishing are you going to be doing? I'm like, not much. So he's like, okay, <laughs> you'll be okay. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, and for me, I'm pounding out there. And even with a bracket, man, I could break any trolling motor bracket right off the bow just, just from pounding out there you know so that that always deterred me a little bit too but if you're a full inshore guy yeah i think it makes sense like on my 17 on my hoog skiff you know that i use for the the backcountry stuff canals and the everglades if i didn't have a trolling motor i would be just just useless out there man right can't live without it yeah anything that avia said you guys probably ought to listen to he's one of the few real guys that actually Grew up down here in South Florida, been on the beach, been in the friggin' water scene basically his whole life. And um, maybe you you were down there on uh, North Miami Beach, right? That's where you grew up? I was born and raised on the north end of Miami Beach. You know, I was fortunate enough where my great-granddad built a house on some vacant land that they just dredged out of the Biscayne Bay bottom on about 77th Street, Biscayne Bay on the east side of the bay on Miami Beach. So I grew up with a dock. You know, it was a 50-year-old house, but, man, I didn't care. It was, you know, it was awesome. It was paradise, man. I was on the water. I had canals surrounding me. I was right on the bay. I could fish before school, after school, riding my bike to the canals. Right, right. I saw on one of your, uh, on one of your posts you were talking about that building down there on Surfside. And you yeah. remembered some stuff from that building that collapsed from when you were a kid. That used to be, what, a public access to the beach down there? Yeah, right next to you. So butted up directly on the south end of the Champlain Towers building that collapsed, which is the south Champlain Towers building that's gone now. There was 87 Terrace parking lot, which was where we would park to use the beach, me and my family, and where, where I would park to surf. Um, even... You know, I mean, you know, as soon as I could drive, I mean, I would park there and there was only about 50 parking spots. If that's probably 30 to 50 parking spots, so they were all in a line. Um, now that I think about it, it's closer to 30 spots. But anyways, they were all in a line east to west. It was just one strip of parking spots. And then there was a shower. And that was like 
all the locals would use that as their beach access from Surfside and the north end of Miami Beach there. Um, you know, and, and if you if you had to drop somebody off or drop a bunch of gear, like if we were going diving off the beach with a kayak and a dive flag, that was the best spot because you could pull almost onto the sand and drop off your stuff and then, you know, swim out and catch lobsters or whatever and swim back. Um, but it was everyone's best public access spot. And I remember when they finally decided to sell that because I guess the city of Surfside decided it was worth more monetarily to sell it for $13 million, I believe, to a condo than it was to keep their residents happy with, you know, available parking access to the beach, which now there there is none anymore that's directly on the beach. So it was a shame, but I, I was going to circle back and say, I remember when they dug that out of there, it was just this gaping hole of just filled with seawater and seemingly sucking the dirt out from underneath the Champlain Towers. And I remember walking by there with my parents and my dog and their dog and, you know, dogs looking in a hole and we were like, holy cow, that looks like, man, it looks serious, like aggressive the way they dug that out, how deep it was and, and how far it penetrated, you know, north underneath that Champlain Towers slab of foundation. And that was the last we heard of it until that building collapsed. And then I, just remembered immediately, of course. Yeah, I was reading that post and that was intriguing to me. I was like, damn, Abby knew what it was like down there. You know, yeah. yeah when I, they started doing the dig and all that. And so many people, you know, have tried to uh, figure out what was going on down there, but almost everybody that's trying to figure out what's going on down there is involved down there. So God knows what they're coming up with. But to get a real guy perspective, somebody that actually used the beach, um, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, um, it and was, it's kind of crazy because uh, I don't know if you believe in karma or not, but taking the access away. Oh yeah, I know, and and you know it was, it was. I almost felt like it was like, man, they, yeah, like you said, it was like, yeah, maybe they got theirs a little bit, but then you think about all those people that died, and you say, holy cow, where's the silver lining in that whole situation? I, the only thing I could think of is maybe that they passed away almost instantly. You know, I. I fished with a couple guys the week that they were finally done with the rubble cleanup and they were forensic scientists. And they told me that every single person that died, it was all from, you know, those heavy concussions was the cause of death, just that, that severe concussion. So it was like pretty much everyone died on impact in there. It was like the only silver lining I could think of is like they just died in their sleep pretty much. Whoa. Yeah. Not too many silver linings in there. Well, I don't know. It seems to be it seems to be like the Florida way just to kind of build out everything. So God knows what we might see here in the next decade or so. But hopefully nothing crazy like that anymore. I hope not. It's a terrifying thought. I remember reading an uh, article in Nat Geo a few years back. It said by 2055, all those skyscrapers or at least 90 percent of them in Sunny Isles Beach will be compromised their structural integrity will be compromised because of the sea level rise you know just rising that two feet you know in in 30 years is going to be enough to just you know or, or a foot whatever it was just to damage it detrimentally so hopefully we don't ever see a repeat of something like that and they can catch it before it happens yeah i hope so too well um talk to us about how you started your offshore fishing 
Like when you started with fishing with Bouncer, that was at the beginning of it? Yeah, well, I guess I did it a little bit. No, I started a little bit before that. Um, my buddy okay. um, at the time, Leo Lombera, he he was a he, he dropped out of high school and he started fishing before me because I was in high school and he started like at 15. He started on some charter boats at Hallover. And I remember him doing it. And um, I had another buddy that got me a job at a rental boat dock on Miami Beach Marina when I was 15. So about the same time, one buddy was fishing on charter boats. The other buddy got me a dock across from Bouncer Smith. So I started seeing these guys fishing and I rode out with my buddy Leo a couple times. And um, he showed me some stuff on a charter boat that belonged to Joe Turner called the Top Dog. And um, then he just kind of sent me on my way and he kept doing his thing. And uh, I walked up to um, Bouncer one day when I was like about 15 or 16, probably, yeah, 16 maybe. And I just shook him you know, shook his hand and, uh, looked him in the eye and introduced myself, you know, and he said, what are you doing right now? I said, well, man, I, I'm working on that rental boat dock. And he said, well, go tell your boss over there. You're coming fishing with me. And I said, all right. So I did. And, um, so I went fishing with him that one day we went sword fishing and I got super lucky because his mate happened to miss his maybe 220 pound swordfish with a gaff. And I happened to hit him, which was pure luck because I knew nothing at all. And, right. um, you know, he liked that. I tried, he liked that. I reached out and I tried, you know, and, um, he invited me back. I remember, but, um, you know, before, before I could start fishing with him too much, I, my parents were like, look, you're in school, man. You got to focus on school. You can work Saturdays and Sundays. So I kept working Saturdays and Sundays, filling in for his mates once in a while um well on their days off and stuff like that but really my first charter boat experience like with a full-time job offshore fishing was on the new moon with captain jack elac at a haul over and he was just this incredible bottom fisherman i can remember he could anchor so perfect you know i think still to this day he's one of the best anchor fishermen you know in the history of south florida for sure but um he, he taught me some cool stuff in just a few months. And then, uh, and then I got this job going down, uh, with my buddy Leo that I mentioned, he, he kind of got me this job, um, going down blue Marlin fishing in Venezuela and Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. And, um, I jumped on that boat and I ended up being the only mate and I just knew nothing at all. I mean, I was so green. I was just like, the greenest kid you could ever hire at that point for marlin fishing. You know, I couldn't rig a value. I was useless. I was probably 18 at that point. And, uh, man, I, I went through the ringer, you know, the guys were screaming at me and I was taking it and we caught some blue marlin and white marlin and sailfish and like grand slams and stuff because the fishing was just that stupid at the time in Venezuela on that LaGuardia bank down there. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, my ballyhoos were spinning and there was white marlin eating them. It was ridiculous. You know, it's just like, <laughs> but um, I learned some cool stuff there. So probably, you know, when I was 18, I guess I, I started my offshore fishing. And, and then when I got back, Bouncer tried to rehire me again, which was the second time. And I jumped on air with Bouncer when I just turned 19 years old. And then how long did that, how long did that spree go for? I went for about let's see about six years straight with bouncer there. And then I decided I needed some, some more big boat experience. 
Um, so I took this job running the therapy at a haul over a charter boat, 58 foot LeMay brothers, um, you know, custom Carolina boat. And I was a captain three days a week and I was a mate two days a week on the other boat that he owned, which was like an identical boat. And I learned some cool diesel maintenance there, you know, and, and I learned some really cool trolling stuff from the guys there that were really good at rigging the baits and, you know, really just showed me about deboning mullet and rigging mullet and some, some more cool stuff about ballyhoos and some old school guys taught me some cool stuff about cutting strips and, you know, to add that to all the live bait stuff and versatility that I was doing with bouncer. And then after a couple of years, you know, bouncer called me up and he hired me back. It wasn't working out with his mate. So after two years, I went back with Bouncer and uh, I guess I forgot to mention in that in that gap where I had left him, he invited me back to fish a tournament. It was a Miami sport fish tournament, Miami billfish tournament, actually. It was the last year of it. And we won the whole thing, the whole shooting match. I remember that. Yeah. So so um, we won everything. And, and me and Bouncer, I guess, kind of realized then that we missed each other a lot. And uh, he ended up hiring me back. I went back with him for another, I guess five or six years. And then, uh, he retired 2020 and I went into it for myself. Wow. Talk about, um, talking about getting through the ranks. Some of those boats you worked on stuff. I mean, that's the heart and soul of, uh, the charter industry down here. Now, did oh, yeah. you realize, did you realize when, uh, when you were fishing with these guys, when you were young, that, that, that hold that held true, that, I mean, you were out with the big dogs. Yeah, no, those guys, to me, to me, I always idolized them. You know, a lot of those. Bouncer, to me, was like the biggest heavy hitter because he could do everything, you know, from from snook, you know, not not everything. He never did the freshwater stuff, but he, everything in the saltwater, he did from snook to swordfish, and he was good at it all, you know. There was guys that were better sight fishermen, but they were one-trick ponies, you know. There was guys that were better bottom fishermen, but that's all they could do. He could do it all, man. So that's who I really wanted to learn from. I wanted to be able to do everything on every tide, on every moon, on every season. And um, I always respected him, you know, first and foremost, higher than everybody. Um, There was a hell of a lot of guys I had a lot of respect for that have fished thousands and thousands of days that I got to work with. Um, I worked with Jimmy David for just a few trips, but, you know, I learned a lot from him just in a few trips we worked with just filling in and stuff once in a while on the L and H and Jack Elac with the bottom fishing stuff, you know, Jimmy with the sight fishing stuff. And, uh, and bouncer taught me most of what I know, but, um, I still don't know anything. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's part of being, uh, in the world of fishing. Every time you think, you know, something you realize you don't really know anything. Right. We've been talking about that for freaking years on this podcast. And that's pretty arrogant when uh, when a fisherman gets to the point where he thinks he knows everything. Yeah, I so at least you're not going down that road. No, man. I, there's no way. I mean, I couldn't even begin to to learn what most of these guys have forgot, including Bouncer. You know, it's just you know people, guys that fish 30, 40, 50 years. There's no way as a young guy you could say, you know, ah, that guy doesn't know anything. You know, it's just impossible. It's just they've seen too much. You know. Right. This this time of year being uh, as we're getting ready for the mullet migration, the happy bait time, by the way, happy bait. Um, oh, yeah. Did you, and, uh, did you and Bouncer um, ever get ready for the 
mullet run? Was that part of your forte? We would, you know, we, we would watch the mullet run. We were sightseers because for us, the mullet run would mean throw the net, maybe get out the net, uh, grab the net. We'd throw the net on the mullet, you know, and if we had nice silvers and they weren't big, giant black mullets, you know, if we had some nice little like eight to 12 inch silver mullet, we would fish them offshore, you know, and otherwise we would throw a couple mullet, you know, in the mullet schools and we would throw some mullet at the rocks and we would drag them around in the inlets. But we always found for whatever reason, especially around government cut, when the mullet were the thickest, it was the hardest to get the bites on mullet. And if you were throwing into the mullet school with a mullet, it would especially be hard to get a mullet bite, to get a bite on that mullet, you know? Right. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's that holds true down here in Broward also. And I don't know, when you, you have to fish multiple consecutive days in the mullet run and you'll have a day maybe or two where it's just insane and you get a ton of bites. But most of the time, it's a spectator type Yeah, it was a spectator. It was a most beautiful, amazing thing to watch them showering in that crystal clear September water, you know, and, and a lot of times – you would, even though it would be powdery because there's sediment, it usually run on a first blow when that real hard northeast blow pushes in on that north jetty of government cut in a corner there where it meets the sand of South Beach. You know, there'd still be sediment in the water, but it would be an amazing sight to see that ring of mullet open up. You could always remember it's like a big mouth, and then you'd see the tarpon in the middle or the shark in the middle of that ball of mullet. And that spectator sport was always just amazing. Sometimes we would just stop throwing mullet and just watch and have our customers watch. And, you know, it was always something we look forward to for sure. But we would have more success, I think, fishing a mullet offshore when they were the thickest. Um, right. You know, that being said, they would after as soon as the mullet thinned out, if we still had some left in the cage, the fish would bite them like crazy. You know, it was like. I love I love fishing offshore with the mullet. People think, you know, that I'm a little bit one-sided or whatever. Well, I'm using the mullets all the time down here for the tarpon and the snooks, but especially during the mullet run, um, you know, you'll have a couple of days where the mullet run will take a breather. There'll be a big school bait up in Palm Beach and one that just went by, so it was like a day or two where, you know, nothing was going on. But we would take the mullet and go out and just smoke everything offshore with them. And we'd use them basically the same way we'd use them for tarpon. Just go right out there and troll them around on the reef. And pretty much every single species out there would eat a mullet. And I don't know if that works year-round, but that definitely worked in September and October, and I still do it now. Oh, it's it was always something that we look forward to, the fall run and the spring run. Now, if like you said, if I could get mullet, every month of the year and if we could get them every month of the year we would fish them offshore every day um it's just there's not that that massive mullet that makes it so easy to catch enough baits for the course of the day so we the time to fishing ratio would be tough because we would end up you know saying oh man a sailfish are biting mullet like crazy we had six bites on them and the other guys next to us fishing herring didn't have any bites you know so we would so we would go in there and we'd try like two hours catch like six mullet and then you go offshore and it's rough and you spend 45 minutes getting out to the reef and you get to the edge of the reef and you open a live wall and three of them jump overboard, you know, and it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, that was, mullet just, life. that's a mullet life, man. So 
they're so, so damn good. And uh, offshore, I mean, just big kings and big blackfin tunas in the springtime, big sails. And, you know, it's just you drop them and the amberjacks eat them really good. And the gag groupers like them. And, man, I mean, they're they're phenomenal baits. You troll them on a center rigger dead and deboned and a big dolphin will pass by every other bait in the spread to eat that mullet. You know, um, they're just phenomenal. But I just I can't get enough of them anymore. You know, I wish I could. But we at times we would ha- get them good, but we could never catch them every day of the year. Right. No, and that's a that's a lot of people don't understand the inshore fishing um call it palm beach broward and dade county but the best inshore fishermen are the ones that are best at catching mullet one doesn't go without the other and uh you're absolutely right the amount of time and energy spent um on chasing mullet around is just insane compared to the other types of baits and you can't buy them no you know what i mean so like you know crab shrimp pretty much everything else i could buy if i'm struggling but to, you can't buy a dozen mullet. No, and and there was a guy. There was, his name's Paul Rafferty. You might know him. Um, he was he now he fishes for blue crabs primarily in the New River up there, um, and the cutoff canal and such. But that guy, he was the mullet man. They called him Paul the Mullet Man, and he would catch mullet. He would fill up his the bottom of his Carolina skiff with salt water and just. It would be a boat live well, and you just throw the mullet in a boat, and then you go over to the castaways dock, you know, just where north of where Hallover Dock is present day time. And he would go from boat to boat to boat. He'd sell every boat a dozen mullet every single morning that he could get them. And it would never be a morning that he wouldn't sell out because that's how valuable the mullet were, whether they were on a kite, dropping them down deep on the bottom rod, trolling them. So that's, that's just, it goes to show you. And those were all legendary fishermen, all the castaways guys, you know. Right. So all those people online, all over the, all over YouTube, social media and stuff, they've been making fun of me about always fishing with a mullet. Now you heard A.B. Raymond. There you Sorry. go. That's Sorry. me. No, I, I, we love the mullet. Bouncer loves the mullet, man. I mean, everybody freaking loves the mullet offshore. That was an old school guy, you know, that, that had any type of experience or that, that talk to the old school guys. Like I love talking to the old guys to see what used to work and what still works now, you know, and man, most of it holds true. It still works. It's just, there's less of it. It's harder to get your hands on. I think. Did you know that the chicken and the mullet got the same gizzard? I did not know. That's true. You can Wikipedia it. And then we actually, I think it was about six or seven years ago. I got some uh, famous chef here in town and I brought him, about a three pound hog leg mullet. And then he took out a three pound chicken and he cut them both open. He put it gizzard by gizzard and they were almost identical. Gosh, that begs the question. What came first, the chicken or the mullet? I think. Well, if anybody tries to get you with that, you just tell them that the chicken and the mullet got the same gizzard. Right. Okay. I will, man. It's evolutionarily they're tied is what you're saying. Well, I just want you to, you know, if I can, people say they always like to learn something. Right. There you go. I love learning something every day. Every time I talk to you, I learn something. I wonder if Bouncer knows if the chicken and the mullet got the same gizzard. Man, or even Bouncer, your buddy Leo. He knows it all, man. Bouncer knows it all. <laughs> I, I would imagine he knows that. You know, I'm getting friendly with your buddy Leo the last couple of years. Oh, yeah, that's good, man. Well, I see him out there freaking tarpon fishing like crazy. 
Yeah, he tarpon fishes a lot, and that's his game, tarpon and snooks. He does really good at it. Yeah, so you know how it is in the middle of the season when you had good clients to call you and you're already booked or whatever, and, you know, you feel kind of funny handing them off to just about anybody. Yeah, no, you can't do that. But I don't know Leo very well personally, but I just kind of knew his background with fishing, so I felt comfortable giving him, you know, anybody that I couldn't take. And then because of that, he was doing the same thing to me, and then – you know how that goes, and you're helping each other get bait and everything else. And uh, I got to say, it was a pleasure. So you were pretty fortunate. He was what, one of your best friends growing up? Yeah, growing up, we were real tight. We went to the pier together. Um, you know, we'd fish the pier together once in a while, and then we would go snook fish a lot. You know, and um, that's the common theme down here. All that's the real how guys we from South Florida. Yeah, man, we're just South Florida Miami kids. You know, we just. We had, uh, he had a super nice truck he bought because he won a tournament when he was like 16. He won this big Key West Sailfish Championship, and he bought this beautiful Chevy Silverado four-door. So, man, he had this truck when we were like 16. So we were like – we had the freedom to do anything fishing-wise. So we would load the truck with live wells and rods, and he always had custom snook rods, but we couldn't afford much. So we had like whatever, four O'Penn Senators on here or whatever, but – you know, we would put like these mullet in his this live wall in the back of Leo's truck and we'd be like hauling down ninety five, like splashing salt water all over the street everywhere, like because, you know, I mean, that's that's all we wanted to do was snook fish and we'd snook fish haul over inlet. We'd back his truck up to the point there, you know, on the incoming tide and have shrimp in the winter time or you know, it's just uh he was always obsessed with snook fishing. Um and and he's made that his little his little niche down here too. He's very good at it, and um, I think he's going to continue to to have success with that. You know, he has a perfect boat. He's got a really nice twenty foot sea craft. He spent a long time redoing it to get it perfect. And yeah, he catches a lot of snook, man. He catches some tarpon, and it's a it's a nice little operation, man. He's got all of his tackle so tight, custom tackle, and just just high end stuff. He tries hard, right. Right. And you can tell, you can tell immediately. Now in your business, um, you've made a transition from South beach over to Hullover Marina and you're running what the 26 Seahawk is it? Yeah. I've got a 26 Seahawk and I, I keep it at Hallover. I'm the closest boat to the ocean, you know, right next to the fuel dock there. It's super convenient for me, you know, five minutes from being out in the ocean. And, um, that boat is super versatile for me man i could do everything from you know fishing way up on the flats you know drifting for sea trout you know out to even sword fishing on a calm day but especially sail fishing on the edge of the reef you know do a lot of that um and it, it has that nice high bow flare so especially for haul over inlet you need that a lot of days right right now you is that um like, how do you see your business going? Like, where do you see your niche right now? How, where's the momentum taking you? I mean, you know, years ago, guys would start to uh, get in their own and they would say, oh, I'm going to be a, you know, go after swordfish or I'm going to be a sailfisherman or whatever. Where do you see your niche right now? Where do you see the growth in the industry? I see it now more than ever that people don't want eight hours on a fishing boat. They, they want a few hours, like a half day trip seems to be perfect. And my niche happens to be families because I just, I like families. I like kids and, um, you know, I'm very patient. So I think that helps me a lot. You know, a lot of guys will, 
will be jonesing when there's sailfish are biting like oh man i wish i was offshore today you know and it's four five six foot out there or whatever and you have this family from idaho and they've got you know a couple of small kids and you get offshore and it's super rough and they're, they're having a miserable time they're all throwing up seasick and stuff so i won't even do that anymore i'll just tell them straight up guys it's pretty rough offshore i think you'd be uncomfortable and you know end up fishing in shore or fishing a bay um even when it's calm, you know, anchor on a reef, fish for yellowtails, mangroves, lane snappers, just to bend a rod, have fast action with families. I think that seems to be my niche. Um, and even, you know, I think even on, on calm days, like I was saying, you know, I, I end up fishing a lot of times more for action, anchoring on a reef, anchoring up on rock piles, you know, um, fishing for stuff that's going to bend a rod every five seconds instead of every few hours, you know, because I just, I, I've never been a guy to chase a glory or like the bigger fish or, you know, killing a bunch of fish to line them up. And I do that still uh, for people that ask for it, you know, and I, and I think I'm pretty good at it, but, but I think my niche is going to be with the families. Right. Well, I think, I think, I think what you're telling us is you want to be more versatile than ever. So therefore, you can take advantage of all that stuff that you've learned throughout the years and make those families happy. Yeah, it's it's true. You know, I mean, if it's, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, I want to be able to do anything, you know, just from, you know, small snappers up to sailfish, swordfish. And, and um, you know, my first year going in my own last year was I think I was pretty successful at being versatile and, and I was pretty pleased with it. Um, it's and I've got two boats. I've got a 17 foot or two. So sometimes if it's blowing like 30, which is like about my cutoff where I say like, Hey guys, it's blowing like 30 out of the Northeast. You want to go on my little skiff. It's a 17 footer. We can take it in the canals of Miami and go catch peacock bass and uh, snook and tarpon. And sometimes some clown night fish and these exotic fish from the Amazon and Africa and stuff. So I think if I could be versatile enough from freshwater, all the species in air all the way up to the big game saltwater and anything in between. I think I'll always be busy enough to make a living. And I think I'll always be happy because I'm doing, you know, different, different things on a daily basis that keep it very interesting for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, I think that's key. Um, I think a lot of the guys that are doing the offshore trolling day in and day out, they burn themselves out. They lose interest. You know, they can't wait for the day to be over. One of the things that um, I love so much about chasing tarpon, um, at least from here in Broward County, is the fishery's always changing. Like, you know, we're doing light tackle fly fishing stuff in the summer. Then we got the mullet run stuff in the, um, you know, September and October. Then you got the shrimp down in Miami you know, during the winter, then you got the spring season and it's constantly changing. Therefore, you know, I don't feel like, you know, I'm doing the same old thing every year all the time. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. And when, and when people used to ask Bouncer, you know, uh, he would always say like, Hey, if you could only fish for one fish the rest of your life, you could pick, you had to pick one fish, what would it be? And he would say tarpon and and I have to agree with them. When people ask me that, I say the same thing because you can fish for them with a fly rod. You can fish for them with dead bait. You can fish for them with live bait. You can troll plugs for them. You can cast and retrieve plugs for them. 
You can fish soft plastics. You can shallow water sight cast them. You could fish them in the deep water. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on. It's the most unbelievably versatile fish, uh, you know, just as a species. I mean, you target them in the daytime, nighttime. I mean, it's just, they'll, they'll never get you bored. To me, they're always, every time that fish jumps to begin with and flares those silver gills and shakes blood and water all over the place, it's just, it gets your adrenaline going, you know, it keeps you going forever. Right. Right. I think, I think, you know, I don't think people, um, I mean, people that fish with bouncer and you obviously over the years knew how good bouncer was at uh, tarpon fishing, but I can remember hundreds of days, you know, sitting on the same area with bouncer and other boats also, but bouncer was very consistent at getting the tarpon. And, you know, we always make fun about putting a lunker in somebody's face. And one thing that, bouncer could do better than almost anybody i've ever seen out there in the miami area anyway is he'd pull right out there when there's five other boats fishing for tarpon and he could pull one right in everybody's face and then get up and move on no i could remember that feeling a lot of days you're right yeah and it was it was it was i don't know i gotta tell you in the last you know 18 months or so not seeing bouncer out there when we're doing our trips is kind of weird. Yeah, it's a strange feeling. There's a piece of Miami missing, you know, because he, in my opinion, yeah, he was the best Miami tarpon fisherman to ever do it that I've ever seen. I mean, he was just incredible. I mean, and doing it in a 33-foot boat nonetheless, you know, with no trolling motor or anything. But, you know, he when when you'd fish with him day in and day out, I mean, he would explain why, explain all the reasons to me. And – Man, mentally, what made him what made him the best was his mental game. You know, was was truly thinking about what he was going to do next and being able to plan. You know, and and thinking about things like, you know, okay, it's an outgoing tide, and if you drift with the wind, you're pulling your shrimp against the tide, and that's no good. You're not going to get any bites. You know, and so many guys wouldn't even think about that. They would just pull the boat out of gear and drift with it. But we would literally take our outboards and bump with the tide and we'd get so many more bites, you know, and that's, that's just one example of things that he would think about, you know, that really truly would make him out fishing one. And no one would realize what he was doing, even if he was sitting there, because that's not something you would think about as a, you know, your average fisherman probably wouldn't think about that. Right, right, right. No, he was totally, totally insane, to, you know, to watch that, you know, year in and year out and then for it to be gone, you know, like, but then again, I got to tell you, the tarpon guide thing—at least, at least with the bigger boats, the center console boats—I um, only see maybe a fifth, maybe even less than that in the oh, last yeah. five or six years. Most of most of the guys either gave up on it, got old like like bouncer, and don't do it anymore. But there was days, and you know, you call it six, seven, eight, ten years ago. And you'd sit out there in government cut and there'd be 12, 13 people all getting paid to tarpon fish in the last couple of years. You see a few, but hardly any. No, you're absolutely right. It was, you know, that that's how it was for a long time. It was very easy, though. And then for a couple of years, boy, it seems like two, three years, once the bull sharks got thick there, that's what we blamed it on. You know, our winter time and springtime tarpon season at and around government cut got so poor 
just the amount of bites and the amount of fish that you would mark and the fish that you would see rolling, it got so poor that we wouldn't even offer it anymore because we just couldn't, you'd get one bite a night. And we were used to getting three to five bites a night in four hours, you know, from five to 9 PM is when we ran our trip. So we just gave up on it because it was so bad. Um, and, and we like, you know, like I said, we blame it on the bull sharks because for years we would tarpon fish and spin around and we'd have doubles and triples of tarpon some nights. And you would never see a shark eat a tarpon. If you saw a shark chase your tarpon, you'd say, holy cow, look at that. It's a shark. Like, you'd be surprised. Right. It was big news. It was huge. You'd say, holy cow, a shark right here. Government cut chasing our tarpon. And then all of a sudden, there was packs of four or five bull sharks chasing your tarpon. You know, you know. it seems like just just shortly after they federally banned, you know, the, the kill of most sharks, of course, bull sharks are still legal to harvest, but that's what was there. So I can't really blame it on that. Um, I can blame it on the longliners being banned from shark fishing off Miami. Um, that I think they definitely kept that balance of playing God because we, you know, we always played God and had regulations on fish, but all of a sudden we banned the longline shark fishermen from fishing off Miami. And those bull sharks just came back with a force where all of a sudden they're eating our tarpon at government cut. And, you know, once that happened, it was very difficult to get bites and we had to start going elsewhere to look for those tarpon. Do you think the, uh, the big dredge that went on, what was that six, seven years ago now? Do you think that that had a big impact on uh, government cut? You know, it definitely did. I mean, I can tell you that we used to catch threadfin herring, which is like, the smallest member of the herring family tarpon are the biggest member of the herring family. So same, same type deal there. I mean, anatomically speaking as a fish goes and the herring that we would catch at the pilot station, we would call it right you know, where fisherman's channel meets up right there at the tip of, of Dodge Island with government cut. Um, that point we would catch threadfin herring there every single morning. As soon as they dredged that cut, you would never, ever see a threadfin herring at that spot again. And we still haven't to this day, except for a fluke maybe once every two years or something, but they're just passing through. But they don't hold there, and the sediment there completely pushed them out. Something with the bottom changed, and they never came back. And um, if, the, if the herring were that affected, the tarpon had to be, you know. Well, I think, I mean, it's there's no doubt about it. The tarpon, you know, there's been a huge change since the – since the uh the big dredge down there i mean i used to tell people that government cut you know for like three months out of the year if you looked out government cut you would see tarpon almost as far as you could see and people would think that boca gran was like the big place for them not that it isn't but government cut was more fish bigger better better than i've ever seen boca gran and now you know, you just don't see that anymore. Yeah, there's tarp in there, but not like the old days. Not only was it better in every aspect, but you just didn't have 100 boats there. There was only, like you said, max 12 boats, and there, there was no threat of sharks chasing your fish, and you were fishing shallow water, not deep water. Everything about it was better than Boca Grande, but, you know, those fish in the inlet, and people would still say Boca Grande was a tarpon capital, but Anyway, that's a different subject. That's but, marketing, right? That's right, all that's, marketing. Yeah, that's marketing. But those fish you're talking about in January, February, and March, probably those few months you're talking about, they were so thick in those three months that we would start at the, you know, at the west end 
of Fisher Island condominium complex, and you would mark those fish from there all the way out to the second marker on the south side of the channel for those three months. And you didn't just mark them for a five foot section. You would mark those fish many of those days. There were 40 feet of fish or 30 feet of fish in only 45 feet of water, you know, and now it's 50 feet deep, but I never marked them again after they dredged that cut like that. And we used to fish them in there and we caught as many as like 15 in one night, you know, like doing that. Even, I mean, it's just changed so drastically that you would never end up marking that giant school of fish again. Right. Right. Now you, you know, is as much about tarpon as pretty much anybody. I mean, just, and I don't care about the scientists and the bonefish tarpon trust people and all that. When you grow up on Miami beach and you fish and you're in the friggin' around the water and then you're fishing with all those guys that you're talking about over the years, you know a lot about tarpon. So let me ask you this. Do you think that those tarpon simply just picked another area to go to? Because I think tarpon are a lot like, or are not like hardly any other fish. I think the tarpon now, or at one point, came to South Florida and was like, man, they fucked up our cut. And the water quality isn't as good as it used to be. It's not near as much bait as there is anymore. So I think I'm going to swim over here to the Abacos and hang out. And I don't know if you know it, in the last 10 years, there's a big tarpon fishery in the Abacos. And there was never a tarpon fishery over there. I've been going there since the 80s. Yeah, there was a few over there, but not like it is now. I think the tarpon simply made up their mind that, hey, South Florida wasn't as good as it used to be, and now they're hanging out at different places. Or do you believe that there's just a lack of fish? I think that that is a huge determining factor. And I know that bonefish swim across to the Bahamas and back. So I know, And I know that tarpon on the full moon in April, May, and June go almost 20 miles offshore, if not 25, to lay their eggs, which is halfway to the Bahamas bank. So there's no reasoning that says they shouldn't hang out in the Bahamas for the months that they were supposed to be here, as long as they could still swim back to the Gulf Stream and spawn out their eggs. That would be the only factor that stopped that. Um, so that seems like, you know, a fairly, a fairly good um, theory. But, you know, I think that the other half of it probably, and I would say it's as much as half of the theory, for me at least, is uh, the juvenile recruitment for tarpon. And Bouncer's been talking about that for many years. And I continue to believe that when we spray for mosquitoes here in so many parts of the city that used to gather so many juvenile tarpon, you know, and thousands and thousands of tarpon where they could live on those mosquitoes until they were big enough to start eating little critters and bait fish and crustaceans and stuff. At that juvenile critical stage, there were no more mosquitoes. And I think a lot of those tarpon larvae die now that we're living on those mosquitoes because there's so many less mosquitoes than there used to be. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it as slow growing as they are. But, but, you know, that being said, you still go down to Flamingo in Florida Bay and the mosquitoes will carry you away. So there's plenty of water with mosquitoes. It's just, I think it's probably half as much water that, that used to support those juveniles, you know? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, in the back of the New River, in the back of the Dania Cutoff Canal, you know, going, you know, back in the 80s, it was just slap full of juveniles. And, you know, like you said, you know, but I, no one's ever brought up the mosquito larva theory to me before. 
Yeah, you know, pretty bouncer, interesting. Bouncer talked about it to me a lot. You know, when I would ask him about stuff because we would have these conversations all the time. And and um, and the more I think about it, with all the development out west and all those Everglades that were drained by the Malaluka trees and drained by the construction and just paved over and developed. That was home for the tarpon babies. You know, that's where those babies would grow up eating skeeters back there. And man, I think they really suffered when we started developing it and, and getting rid of the wetlands where the mosquitoes, you know, were prolific and, and where those tarpon could really do good in that real small stage of their life. Yeah. Over overdevelopment. That's the big, that's the big keyword, you know, um, People want to talk about water quality and all this different stuff. It all is about development. Florida's always been about development. It's always been on the path where they would pretty much destroy anything in its path to develop. And to this day, I really don't see much of a change in direction. A little bit of talk about it. A little bit of movement trying to move some more water through the Everglades since we starved the Everglades from the water. But very little. I think development is the key phrase that everybody stays away from because everybody makes money down here yeah developing it's just a big monopoly we just got one little peninsula and everyone's trying to build on every piece of it they can make what they can before it's all gone i think it's been a big rush to build on every little section of it it's it's quite depressing you know for guys like us to watch it um you know and and in the other hand you know, you're holding your wallet and you're going, man, I'm booking a lot of trips. There's a lot of New Yorkers moving down. There's a lot of people moving down. I'm right. staying really busy. We've got a lot of new clients, you know, and, and we're all guilty of that. But, you know, I, I think that to want to do both tears me apart because I want to be busy enough to make a good living and support my family. But at the same time, sometimes I wish it all would burn to the ground and it would go back to how it was, you know, just be that natural environment. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, you got a family and you're, and you're making it through here and the amount of money that it takes to live in South Florida now has never been like this before. And if you want to be a fishing guide, I mean, you literally got to fish five days a week just to get by down here nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. The cost, just the cost of groceries down here. And, And it's, I'm glad you touched on that because a lot of my people say, Oh man, you know, it's 700 bucks for a half day, 1100 for a full day. That seems like a, like a more than I'm used to. And I would say, well, man, it, that's what it costs to live down here. I said, it, it wouldn't be worthwhile if I charged any less for the boat I have. And a lot of them say, oh, well, I understand. Yeah. I've been to a restaurant down there. I've been to a grocery store down there, you know, and, and most people will understand if you put it like that, that you just, I just can't justify making a living to charge any less. Right. And I think that um, I think that the part of the industry that wants to keep um, rates so low that others can't compete and it's not healthy for the consumer and it's not healthy for our industry. And I've seen that big battle, especially in the offshore market. Like yes. right now, at least here in Fort Lauderdale where the offshore charter boats are, we're charging the same price. But their overhead is five times what a tarpon guide is. I but they're doing agree. that because they're competing themselves into the ground. Oh, man, I couldn't agree with you more there. We're like-minded in that way, too, because, man, I, I just can't see how a lot of these guys charge what they charge. I mean, and, and 
you know, it's just hard to imagine. I mean, it's hard to imagine from a financial standpoint, if you own a small business, how some of these guys cut their stuff and, you, you know, you see them on, you know, things like Groupon or Fishing Booker and you go on there and you see some guys and, man, they're going for like almost half of what I'm going for. And I go, how the heck, by the time you pay a booking agency or Groupon 20 or 30%, you know, on a $400 trip, you know, and then you're left with 300 bucks and then you got 150 bucks of expenses. And then you made a hundred bucks on a trip and that goes to driving your car back and forth. I, you know, it's just like, I don't even understand how a lot of that makes sense. You could probably have a desk job and make the same money or something. And then when something breaks, you know, you're even deeper in a hole. So that stuff was always bad for the industry. I mean, that's been going on since the first fireman said, Hey, I could just charge my expenses and pay off my boat, basically, you know? Right, right, right. Well, the experience that you had where you were watching the other guys pay the bills for a long time, I mean, that had to, you know, really, you know, hit home. It had to really work. You know, a lot of guys that get in this business, they didn't watch other people spend their money. They jump in with both feet and the next thing you know is they're in, you know, they're in deep water. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I watch a lot of different business models. I got I watch guys that would refuse to spend any money and then they would lose a lot of trips because they didn't fix this or didn't fix that and it cost them and then they couldn't go fishing that day. And I would watch guys that would shell out so much money that they would never make a buck. They would they would charge what they're supposed to be charging, but they would spend so much, you know, on things like fishing tackle and, you know, tipping the gas guys and tipping everybody that helped them and stuff like that, that, man, you just couldn't make a living at the end of the day. So I wanted to settle somewhere in between where I, I took care of everybody that was helping me out because you need a lot of help in this industry. But, and, but I also, you know, and, and would buy high quality things for my boat and have high quality tackle and buy the right stuff and fix things the right way, but have to charge enough to where you could still make a living. And I think that's where the balance comes in. Well, I think you hit it on the head earlier in the in the conversation where you talk about making families happy so many guys get caught up on what we actually do as professional fishermen and when you cut through all the chase we're paid to make people happy and if you don't charge enough in order to make that you know happen how in the hell can that be good for an industry or a business or anything else but you should feel fortunate that you have the quality, you have the skills where you can charge what you need to charge to get by down here because that's a feat in itself. Oh yeah. No, it's crazy what it costs to live here, man. You know, I'm sitting in my little house now. I live over here by Miami Shores, a little area called Biscayne Park. And, you know, I just have a little lot of land, a little shoebox of a house, a little two bedroom house, you know? And, you know, if you took, if you took the money, that, that I spent on this little tiny house, little thousand square foot house. You know, if, if you were to take that same money somewhere else in the country where a lot of our customers come from, you know, that you could buy a large house or even a mansion with the same money that your little shoebox is worth down here. So, you know, I think, I think a lot of, um, a lot of people don't understand that when they book the trip, they're sitting on the phone in North Carolina or, you know, Tennessee or Ohio, and, and you got to put yourself in their shoes and just explain to them that it costs so much more to live down here, you know? So you're right. 
You're right. Well, and then they get off the plane down here now, and very abruptly they realize it's not a little beach town anymore. Oh, yeah, no. The first $14 margarita they buy, they, they feel it real quick. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Amy, thanks for spending the uh, the time with us to be on the uh, Real Guy podcast. I think people are going to really dig the conversation that we had. Um, heck, I learned some shit today, and that uh, that's always a major bonus. Well, that's great, man. I learned some cool stuff, especially with the gizzards. And I appreciate it. The chicken and the mullet got the same gizzard. Check out that YouTube video. If you uh, if you just Google search that, it'll come up. <laughs> All right, man. I'll check it out. I appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Dude, that was the best Real Guy conversation I think we've ever had on the Real Guy podcast. I appreciate you, Amy. <laughs>